spend one night with you in this old rendezvous and reminisce with you. That's my desire to go where gypsies play down in this small cafe and dance the night away. That's my desire. We'll sip a little glass of wine. Welcome, everybody. It's Hollywood Godfather podcast time again. And I think tonight you're going to really enjoy the show because we're staying in the genre we know, especially Pat's background, being a police officer in New York, and mine, who is favorite making gangster motion pictures. We have a legend in the law business, or uh, how should I say, the legal profession. The legal profession. Is it really a business? Well, <laughs> not for me, it's not. I've, I've been beat so many times that I can't call it a business. I'll call it a, a, a calling. It's a calling. It's a calling, okay. And the gentleman who's talking right now is Matthew Mari. Matthew, thank you so much. I call hey, him Matty. I'm so happy to be with you. Every time I talk to you, I have such a great, great time. And you are on my show. The Matthew Mary show, a, a radio few times. show, yeah. Michelle, uh, only a couple of weeks ago. And you know what? You know, we, we stood on for a brief period of time, but I could have you on for hours. You're so you're so funny and so interesting, and you have so many really good stories. Well, thank you. And you met Megan. My, my, our millennium is Megan. Hello, everyone. And, and, and she, she keeps us on our toes. <laughs> I try. Matt, being this whole story, and we did a, uh, an hour prior to you, and uh, we're talking about famous lawyers that had famous gangster customers. And you, your name came up right away in my mind. <laughs> in fact, we still eat in a famous restaurant in Corona. Mm. I'm getting hungry. Uh-huh. Who, who, who would you say your top five gangsters that you represent? Oh, man, gangsters. Jesus. Uh, you're talking about who the toughest were? Uh, some of them I can't even mention their names to you, even though they're dead. But I'll tell you that uh, I love That's really them. tough. Yeah, that's too tough. If they can yeah. reach from the grave, I you wouldn't say their name at all. someone <laughs> who's dead. That's tougher than tough. No, and I didn't say say dad. Who's who's famous? Period. I don't care. Well, well, let's let's go through some famous ones. You know, I, I we we often see all these gangster documentaries with various people, like John Gotti, for example. And you always see John Gotti swaggering with his you know beautiful suit on and a hundred people surrounding him. Next thing you see is his photograph. With, with the uh, with the numbers underneath him and and all the rest of that stuff and and then you see the picture of a guy named McBratton that was you know ancient John Gotti history laying on the floor it's always the same thing and you know my memories of people like John Gotti are just so much different because I met him and talked to him and was befriended by him in a different way, and just in a different way. And because I'm a lawyer, I guess that's the reason that I got to meet so many of the people that you might talk about in that genre. But I mean, John Gotti was probably one of the toughest guys that I ever met. I watched my P's and Q's when I talked to him. And you're old enough to understand what that means, Johnny, right? Oh, I don't believe me. I think everybody listening does too. (laughs) Yeah, you know, uh, when I would talk to John, I made sure I didn't make any mistakes, but he was always nice to me, kind, class guy. Another guy who was always nice to me was Carmine Galante, also known as Lilo. I always called him Carmine. And uh, Carmine was so feared that when he walked into a room, people started to shake. And I mean that literally. I mean, I had seen that many, many a time. And uh, I happened to meet him when I was a very young toddler, a toddler, and happened to sit on his knee. Uh, After he got out of jail, uh, I, I never represented Carmine, but always, always talked to him about all the legal problems that he would have. And I found him 
could be, uh, from my point of view, very much unlike what the public portrayal was. To me, he was like a kind, kind uncle and very, very respectful. Um, let's see. That's because he liked you. That's because he liked you. He was another guy. He was the, there were, there were only two guys that I watched my P's and Q's with, John Gotti and Carmine Galante, Lilo, because they watched what you said. And if you said something wrong, they'd let you know. And I never like to be reprimanded. I haven't been reprimanded too many times in my life. One of my other all-time favorites is Carmine Jr. Persico, uh, who I had the great honor, honor and privilege to represent during the, the last five years of his life, along with Anthony DiPietro, who's a, a young man who's a, the most brilliant uh, writer and legal researcher that I've ever met in my life. And we spent so much intimate time with Carmine Persico in jail. I happened to have met Carmine when I was 18 years old. And uh, again, I met him during the course of the commission case uh, in 1985. And so our friendship kind of bounced along the road. But uh, knowing Carmine was a great, great honor, Carmine Persico. And well, did, he, did, you go, did you go to L.A. to visit him? Uh, no, no. I visited him in, uh, in North Carolina in a, in a prison hospital. That's where he spent the last. Oh, yeah. That, that's recent times. Yeah. Of his life. Uh, you know, when I first met Carmine, I met him in, in Brooklyn where I live and uh, I was 18 years old and uh, I met him because I happened to have an uncle who was in jail and who had some information which was going to be helpful to Carmine's case at that time. That's back in the 60s. And uh, I met him and I, I, I met a lot of people. That's when like, I met him. Yeah. Yeah. I met a lot of people, Johnny, who you might call, you know, they call them gangsters. Okay. But I met people that, that were just great men. And uh, Carmine Persico, I know he knows you. Oh, we yeah. talked about yeah. you. Well, the yeah. bottom line, the bottom line, we, we, we talked about something you said about him once in one of your books. Oh yeah. And uh, <laughs> I have to say, I wouldn't say that I had to defend you, but I will say <laughs> that Carmine was a little bit upset about something you said about him. And I said, come on, Johnny Russo's a good guy. You know he loves you. And he would never say anything bad about you. You know what it is. Well, I, I didn't really say anything bad about him. I mean, I did mention. Well, you didn't say but, anything bad. But you the, got trapped, the good, the good... trapped by a guy named Jimmy. Yeah, hello. Sent, sent you into Carmine to say hello. That's a great story. I think we'll get to it later. Those are the three top guys, I would say, that everyone knows that were the toughest guys that I met in my career as a lawyer and as a kid growing up in lower Manhattan and then Brooklyn. And, uh, you know, I know two other guys that not too many people know. We'll let them rest in peace for now. Did you know Louis Dome, Louis Persico? I knew Louis Dome and I got so many Louis Dome stories. I mean, I love going to the separate tables. Oh, yeah, his restaurant. Greatest, right. One of the greatest restaurants and bars that I've ever been in, right. and I, I used to go there in my 20s, right, in, in the 1970s, and um, I loved being with Louis. He was the, the quintessential host, oh, and yeah. he treated everyone so good, and at his restaurant, I met Frank Sinatra two times. Well, Frank two was always in. incidents. If Frank was in and, New York, he had to go, had to go. <laughs> you know, I, I, I once was in Las Vegas. This is a great story. I got I to just hit you on the head with it. Because when you mentioned Louis Dome, Louis was always being <clears throat> inundated with requests from his friends to get Frank Sinatra tickets. And I always said to myself, I'll never do that to Louis. And I happened to be in Las Vegas walking around as a young man in my 20s, what, nothing to do, had the town at my disposal. Was it the Sands or Caesars? Huh? Was it the Sands Hotel or Caesars Palace? I was staying at the Dunes, I think, but he was performing. Frank was at Caesars Palace. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. That's and the I'm only two places you were allowed to perform until everybody passed on, and then Steve Wynn got him down at the right. Nugget. 
So I, I, I see Frank Sinatra on the masthead at, at Caesar's Palace. I go to a guy uh, who had the Leaning Tower of Pizza. Jasper. Jasper. Yeah. My oh, man, Jasper. Oh, my God. I'll think of it in a second. I know his I name. Write, Jasper. 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 I see Jasper. Are you Jasper. kidding me? <laughs> oh, I know everyone you know. And can you please can you please get me in to see Frank? He said, tonight's the last show. He said, it's impossible. And I started to sulk, you know. I was a real big Sinatra fan. And so I go to the Caesars Palace, dressed up with a suit and tie, sit down at the bar, start drinking a martini, hoping, hoping that someone would walk in that I would know. Well, Louis, Louis at that bar an hour before every show. <laughs> Let me tell you what I did. I called the separate tables very reluctantly, and I asked the bartender, Sally Boy, actually, is, is Louis there? And they said, no, Louis's not here. He's out of town. And, you know, I hung up. I was sulking my head and my, my hands, you know, and who walks in but Louis Dome. We were there every night. The Galleria Bar, Caesar's Palace. Listen, Gianni, <laughs> Louis walks in and he says, "What are you doing here?" I said, "I'm, I'm, I'm very subtly, you know, I said, I'm, I'm hoping to get in to see Frank." He says, "Well, you're in." He says, "Come on in." And I sat at his table, ringside, which was Frank's table. I know. Uh, Frank's wife was the first person of a line of 14 people on each side, right. and I was number 14. And I got to see Frank Sinatra that night because of Louis Dunn. And it just he was just such a great guy. Such you know, Pat, 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 Pat and I, are, our second book is Sinatra, The Mob, and Me. Wow. I got to get that one. <laughs> you know, we have to write it first. Okay. <laughs> you know, Sinatra is quite a character. Some people love him, and, but not everyone loves him. I mean, I, his music... It, to me, is like like he would say, "I want to be the last voice you ever hear," and and that's you know how much I loved Frank Sinatra. I loved everything he did, and uh, I got to meet him because of Louis Dunn. Oh yeah, Louis. Louis, Louis Louis controlled him the last fifteen years of his life, mm -hmm. and not for a good reason for Frank, for a bad Was reason. The premier theater. Well, my God, that, that they 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 saved him from going to jail. Yeah, everybody else went to jail, and he, he he was able to step down, but he knew what was going on with the skimming of those tickets. In fact, I was backstage the night they took that famous picture with Carlo Gambino and everybody, and Carlo says to me, "Hey kid, get out of this picture." <laughs> yeah, but they always protected me. Carlo and Frank Costello always protected me. I would have never got my Nevada gaming license if I was in that picture. You know, I've met a lot of people in my life, and Frank Costello is not one of them. Wow. What was he like? Oh, he's amazing. We, our, my, our audience is already tired about him. He died in 73, so you had a, I, I met him like when I was you know, 13 and in the late 50s. So I, I had basically a 20-year run with the guy. I, I mean, he, he was my mentor. I can imagine, you know, the Frank Costello's legendary history was that he was a businessman. Would, would you say yes. he was a businessman? Oh, yeah. He amassed during Prohibition $30 million cash, him and Joe Kennedy. Then they went on to real estate. You won't believe what they own. It's amazing. Great guy. And then he created the syndicate with Maya Lansky. But, uh, but I mean, the, the, the mob stuff in the, in the cases is where we, uh, we the highlight of the show, we were trying to get more of that. And uh, any interesting cases? You know, cases, I mean, I've had so many cases, uh, Gianni. I can't, you know, as you know, most of these cases are not spectacular. And, and the whole legal system, the criminal justice system is not, not about spectacular trials and spectacular trial lawyers who win every case. You know, the only way that a lawyer is going to be able to say honestly that he's won every case is if he is a prosecutor in the military justice system. I mean, criminal defense lawyers, we know that the government 
wins 98% of all the cases. And that means that about 96% of all the people who are indicted in federal court plead guilty. So your job is to make a deal. You're a deal maker. You're a negotiator. So I, being, I, I want to just interject something because a, a lot of our audience is not as savvy and knowledgeable as you and I. But I, I want to just say... The only time that that that's not wasn't true is when Bruce Cutler was representing John Gotti because John Gotti would let the witnesses disappear. <laughs> Listen, John had a philosophy, and that was more than a philosophy. His his rule was that no one pleads guilty, right. and that you go to trial on every single case. And unfortunately, his brother Gene, who I've never met, but I've heard is an excellent, excellent human being. A great guy, person. Right. Uh, Gene did 55 oh, years know. because yeah. he had to go to trial when he could have gotten a deal for 15 years. Yeah, but now, John so, won't let you cop a plea. <laughs> yeah, you know, the audience, the audience might not think 15 years is a good deal. But, you know, we know that if you're facing 50 years, yes, 15 years is a good deal. I've had some spectacular trials I don't know if you remember Tommy Karate, Tommy Patera. That was the first federal death penalty case in New York federal courts. And I was the lead counsel on that case. And that had to go to trial. There was no deal. No deal was offered by the government. And my client, Tommy Karate, Thomas Patera, he said to me, whatever they offer you, tell them to go to hell I won't take it. And uh, he was tried for nine murders, uh, multiple drug offenses, weapons like you can't believe. I never saw so many weapons in, in a movie. Uh, it, they piled up weapons in the courtroom so that we couldn't see the jury. There's so many weapons were seized. <laughs> wow. Silencers, silence, everything. Uh, torture equipment that you can't believe or imagine exists on this earth. And... Uh, you know, Tommy was a great, great uh, uh, client and a great baseball fan because when the six murders were, were, you know, when the trial was over, he was acquitted of three murders. I won three murder cases in one day, but he was convicted of six murders wow. on that very same day. And, you know, the legal team was feeling kind of low. You know, our heads were kind of on our chest, and Tommy Karate turned to us, and he said, hold your heads high. You're batting 333. <laughs> <laughs> that's and a guy whose glass is half full, that's for sure. That's, yeah. that's the truth. But but he didn't get the electric chair. No, no. We we, we won the death penalty phase. You know, Tommy, Tommy is such a guy. You know, he, he was not a legal scholar. You know, the government told him to his face, you know, we've accused you of nine murders, but we've got 37 others that we are waiting in the wings with. And Tommy Karate Patera, he said to them, ha, 37? And the prosecutor went, well, he said, oh, he's admitting, he's admitting that it's more than that. And I, being Tommy's lawyer, said, no, no, he means that the real number is zero. Much more. Yeah, but, uh, you know, uh, Tommy told me, as his lawyer, that he wanted me to waive the death penalty phase, not to have that, that proceeding, and to have the judge sentence him to the death penalty. And I said, Tommy, we can't do that. That's unheard of. He said, listen to me, Matt. He said, if I am the first person in federal court in New York State to get the death penalty, the Supreme Court of the United States will pay attention to our appeal. But if not, if I'm just another gangster who's got life in prison, they'll just throw our appeal in the garbage can. But let me correct you, though. I, I had the privilege of making a movie, which I played Albert Anastasia in, and the first guy to get the death penalty and got it was Lewis Bookhalter. Oh, yes, but, but but Gianni, that's in New York State. That was a New York State case. Uh, in New York, in federal court. Oh, you mean court, federal, okay, okay. 
in federal court, right. they never had a death penalty until 1990, unbelievably, yeah. uh, in, in this state. Uh, you know, so, so in other words, for a federal court to charge you with a death penalty, it has to be legal in the state that you're in. But for a long, long time, the death penalty was, was uh, hmm, how do you say, it was out legally. Yeah. I think the death penalty in New York State, again, is no longer in effect. Right. The worst you can get is life in prison. But, you know, Tommy was right. Uh, by not getting the death penalty, I don't think the appellate courts paid attention to a lot of shenanigans that took place during Tommy's trial. Is he still with us, Matt? Yes, he is. Tommy, Tommy went to jail at the age of 33, and he's now 65 or 66. He isn't getting out, I assume. He's always trying. He's always mm. trying. So that's one of the most famous cases where I was the lead counsel. Of course, I was in the commission case, which is probably in terms of organized crime cases, RICO cases, you know, the granddaddy of all cases. I, I represented a guy named Stevie Beef. Also, his real name was Stefano Canone. And uh, I represented him, but he died a natural death prior to the starting of the commission trial. Then later on in years, I represented Carmine Persico, uh, along with Anthony DiPietro, uh, in his appeal, which is quite an extraordinary uh, uh, case we had. Uh, you know, I'm not naive, but I really thought we were going to walk Carmine out the door because of government misconduct and hiding evidence. It was extraordinary. And yet, when it comes to certain people, Johnny, when you have an X, a red X on your file that says you're never getting out, it you're never means getting out, you're never getting out. Yeah. Well, he, I tell you, I I like Junior. I met him early on when he joined the Columbo. Well, he was always around the Columbos, but then later on he got crazier with power, and uh, that's when he changed. I, I tell you, I left New York just in the right time after the Colombo attempt on him before he then he lived as a vegetable. But I left that day, June 28, 1971. <laughs> Were you at the rally that day? I, I was. I was supposed to be there, and Tommy Bellotti called me, and he said, you going to the rally? I said, yeah, of course, I'm on the dais. He said, you're not going. I said, what are you talking about? He said, the old man don't want you to go. I said, Tommy, I'm, I, I'm on the dais. He said, I don't care if Joe Colombo was sitting on your lap. Don't go. <laughs> and thank God I didn't go. I was in Angelo's by, by, you know, right after he called me, I got dressed. I went out the back door of the Park Lane Hotel, walked up to 6th Avenue, got on the N train, and went down to Mulberry Street. I'm having a, a, a dish of pasta vongoli bianco, and they announced that Joe Colombo got shot. It was quite a day. I, oh, my God. Know, a, a lot of people, unfortunately for Italian-Americans, the Joe Colombo's idea was the great one, all right, to, to challenge the stereotyping of Italian-Americans. Right. You know, we're the only people on the face of the earth that can be abused, laughed at, uh, uh, mistreated, and no one cares. You can't get anyone to help you. And at that, uh, Joe Colombo really had a great idea, but he was wrong to make himself the head of it, of course. the visible head of it, because that is what created. Well, even, even having Anthony, but the see when I met Barry Schlotnick at the at the office, the league, I said to him, "Why don't you let this guy front it? A nice Jewish guy trying to they, yeah. listen to him." You know, they, Barry they, was a class guy, especially yeah, at that still time. Still is. Still is. He's retired living in Palm Beach. You know, I'll tell you a little story about Barry. When I was on the commission case, I was at all the big shot lawyers out in Arizona when there was a hearing, and Joe Bonanno was the, uh, the witness at the hearing. Rudy Giuliani wanted to question Joe Bonanno about his book. I forget the name of it, but that was the basis for Rudy Giuliani creating the commission case. And we were all out in... Uh, in Arizona, 
uh, and and the best lawyers in the country were there. I've I was been a young lawyer at the time. It was time. so friggin' hot. Forget about it. <laughs> oh, you know, we had such a great time. We stood at a real fancy place, the Lowe's something or other, and we drank and, the, and ate every night. We had no work to do. Our job was simply to go to court every day and see what was happening. And it was a hearing to determine whether or not Joe Bonanno would become a witness uh, at the commission trial because the commission case was based upon his book. Uh, and I, I believe the name of the book was A Man of Honor. A Man, a man of Honor, yes, indeed. Yeah. And uh, anyhow, I had met Joe Bonanno when I was 14 years old, uh, and I'll tell you how next time I come on, but I met him when I was 14 years old. Now, at that time, I was 35 years old, and Joe Bonanno refused to answer any questions. And uh, there was a break, and he called me over and asked me, he said, you know, Matt, look, first he said, you know, you, I haven't seen you since you're a little boy. And we reminisced a little bit, and he said to me, he said, what, what do you think is going to happen to me? I said, you're going to go to jail for the duration of this case. And he, he said, really? He spoke in broken English. You know, yeah, he kept was, taking the fifth. Yeah, he took, yes, he took the fifth, and they, they gave him immunity. And, you know, he was going in for contempt. So right. he took his watch and his ring off and the money he had in his pocket and gave it to his granddaughter. I'll never forget it. And he told he told his granddaughter, he said, looks like I'm going to jail. And he did go to jail for about a year and a half. Uh, then the commission case proceeded. But but I, the story I was about to tell you was about Barry Slotnick. Because when we used to go out as lawyers every night, and, you know, Gianni, you know I love to drink. But uh, my friend John McNally. Oh, I he, love John. Yeah, I said John, John's the greatest investigator of all times. By, by, you know, hands down, without any competition. I just celebrated his 87th birthday last Thursday with him. Right. I, I was with him. I think we saw, he and I celebrated it alone. Um, I think it was last Friday, but right. anyhow. So, John, I say to John, I said, boy, this is going to be a tough trip. I said, because I won't be able to drink during this trip. And he said, well, what are you talking about? I said, I, I, you know, I don't want those lawyers, those big shots, to be talking about me, you know, how much I drink. And John said, Matt, he said, those guys will drink you under the table, under the table. <laughs> That's for sure. And, and, you know, it was the truth. It was the truth. You know, every night when I would say I'm going home, uh, meaning going to my room in the hotel, Jimmy LaRosa would say, where are you going, kid? <laughs> I said, I've had enough. He's, and he'd shake his head, you know, very, very, you know, good guy. Jimmy was a pretty good guy. Jimmy's a good me. guy, man, yeah. I liked, I liked him a lot. Oh, so Barry. So Barry's telling us a story at the table where he's lamenting. He's going to fire his, uh, his, uh, oh, his accountant. His accountant. His accountant told him, Barry, I want you to buy a, a building in Buffalo. It's going to lose a lot of money, and that's going to be good for you tax-wise, because you've made too much money this year. And Barry said, lo and behold, the building not only didn't go under, but made a profit of like $2 million. And, <laughs> and he, was, he was mad at his accountant for, for getting him that building. And I said to myself, as a young kid, oh, you, you've got to be part of this group. <laughs> yeah, tough life. Yeah. Making too much money. They, they, they lived, those gentlemen lived in the golden age. Oh my of God! Their retain people are tell. I mean, people wouldn't realize their retainers back then were two hundred fifty thousand. When, when I first started, nineteen seventy six, I graduated law school. Uh, Jimmy, I think Jimmy LaRosa and Jerry were charging two hundred fifty thousand as a retainer. A retainer. Just to open the case. Just to open the door. Open the door. Oh, Jimmy man. was great. I used to see him talk to clients. I saw him ask a man for seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars. And after, you know, listening to to the facts of his case and talking to him about it, Jimmy stood up at a certain point and cut the meeting short and said to the guy, you know, Mr. X, uh, I think I know what to do. He said, Now if if you come with a check for seven hundred fifty thousand dollars tomorrow and give it to my secretary, 
me and my team will be on this case tomorrow. He says, and if you can't do that, I just, and he extended his hand. He said, I just want to wish you the very best of luck. <laughs> and, and the guy wants to talk to him. The guy wants to, and Jimmy like just like walks away oh, from yeah. him. Oh, yeah. No, Jimmy, and, and Jimmy controlled. I, Jimmy was, uh, I mean, I met him, a good friend of mine, Joe Watts, used Jimmy for a while. But, uh, sure did. <laughs> <laughs> he was in, no, Jimmy was involved in every case. I know. Jimmy right, was a good guy. Sometimes as the number one guy, sometimes as the number two. Only yeah. Joe Watts could hire Jimmy LaRosa as a number two guy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was, well, that kind of stuff we can't talk about. Joe's coming out to somebody. It's number seven. Yeah. yeah. He wants to see you. Oh, right I away. know that. I know that. He already <laughs> sent messages. <laughs> Hey, listen, Joe's one of the greatest men uh, that ever lived. I, I'm, no, and then I'm serious no, about it. No, he you is. Know, he wrote an, Jerry Capisi wrote an article about him. You know, uh, look, there's a lot of nasty stuff that's been said about Joe Watts. By the gentleman of gentlemen. Wonderful man that you could ever want to meet. The greatest friend uh, you could ever want to have. You know, it's so Talk funny. We were, we were 15 and 16 years old. I can't say yeah. anything more than that, but that we were partners from then. <laughs> when, I, when I met Joe, I was six, 16 years old, and Joe was 26 right. years old, and he, he owned a place called the, uh, the Dream, Dream Lounge. Lounge. No kidding. On the corner Lounge, Nelson Avenue and Highland Boulevard. That's it. And later it became Johannes, and yeah. he had Dream Lounge, too. But we kids. Remember when he the bought the Lincoln Motel, a Lincoln Hotel? Lounge, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was great. And you know, Staten Island is a place that you know when you grow up in Manhattan, as I did, going to Staten Island was a was like the country. It is the country, right? Country, or when you had to go to to a funeral, you know, a lot of people are buried in Staten Island. But uh, we never went to Staten Island. No. But Joe Watts had so many great places, and as kids, and he accepted us from Manhattan as kids, and then later on. By accident, I found out that Joe uh, knew many relatives of mine, and we became really close friends through the years, right up, right up until now. And now we're in old age together, yeah. you know. And uh, hopefully, uh, we still have enough time. Don't don't tell him he's old though. <laughs> don't ever say he's old. <laughs> I have a classic story with Joe Watts. Just before he went in this time, we were on a date, and uh, he's telling the girl. Well, you know how old he was, and we, he was off about thirty years, and then we started <laughs> talking about the Godfather, and he said I was on the set every day up there with them, and then she looked at him and said, "But wait a minute, how old were we on the set? Four? <laughs> <laughs> you know, one one of my funniest stories about Joe is is that one time when he came out of jail, uh, I I. I wanted to, uh, we were a bunch of guys, McNally, Hawkins. Oh, Jimmy Hawkins. Uh, you know, we, we were all together, and uh, and we took him to Volare, Volare, in Manhattan. And he liked it. We had a good time. And uh, I snuck to the back and paid the check. <laughs> oh, my God. That's and a no-no. A, a when it came time for the check, you know, Joe asked for the check. And the guy, the owner said, well, it's already been paid for. And Joe said, who paid for it? And, uh, you know, I was identified as the culprit. <laughs> Joe called me in the back and he said, Matt, he Don't said, I ever know do you, that again. I know you since you're a kid. He says, why would you do something like this? I said, Joe, I wanted to pay one check. He said, don't ever do that again. Please, right. please don't ever, ever do that again. And, you know, I was smart. I said, Joe, I'm sorry. I'll never do that again. And he meant that. But you know what's so funny? In your conversation just now, you mentioned Jimmy Hawkins, John McNally, and the other guy this past Thursday was Jerry Segal. We all had, we took, uh, they took him, uh, John McNally for his 87th birthday. Yep, yep. Uh, it's amazing. We still John's go on. pretty good for 87, right? I'm the, I'm the only person out of that whole crew Never slept in a jail. Never had handcuffs on. 
the night is still young. No, I'm staying home tonight. All right. <laughs> <laughs> now, our, our millennium, you, you've heard so many crazy stories. Now you're talking to a, a, an attorney on the other side. Do you have any questions of the changes and what's going on in the law now and what we're seeing? Because you represent, I would say, maybe 50% of our audience now. You started out with 10, but she's bypassing Pat and I because she's so yeah, cool. <laughs> I don't know about that. I don't know about that. So you're asking if I have any questions for For him? Maddie, yeah. When, you, um, when you're a millennial, what, what does that really mean? <laughs> How old are you? I guess it just means I'm young. I'm 24. Oh, 24. That that classifies it as. You know, my daughter is 33, and she said that she's a, a millennial. You know, and I, I said, I don't, I'm not quite sure that that you're uh, young enough. You know. She didn't want to hear that. Yeah. <laughs> hey, it's nice. Um, 24, Johnny. How how much would you pay? To be 24 again, Johnny. Never, never. I love you my life. You wouldn't do it again? No, no. I wouldn't change one day of my life. Plus, <laughs> I'm I'm taking stem cells. I got another 24 years to go easy. I'll be 100-something. <laughs> we have longevity in my family. My Aunt Lily's like 106. We got, I, oh I, I live well. I just got to make sure I don't get shot again or stabbed. That's what I got. That's it. <laughs> you have to learn how to duck. <laughs> Matt, one thing I do want to say is I understand you're a Fordham grad. Yes, I am. I went to, uh, I grew up on the Lower East Side, and uh, I, I went to uh, Xavier High School when it was a full military Jesuit high school. Then I went to Fordham College in Roselle, Bronx campus. And then I went to NYU for a semester. Uh, I took up political science. Then I went to law school at New York Law School, which is a different place from NYU. And uh, after that, I became a legal aid society lawyer for three years. And uh, and then I went into private practice. But to this day, uh, you know, most people think of me as a organized crime lawyer, a federal lawyer. But the, the truth is that while that's what made me notable, uh, most of my clients through the years have been indigent people because I, I do, uh, I am on panels, uh, like for example, the, the appellate division panel of uh, New York State, which I represent people in homicide cases, um, not for free, but you get paid by, by the state. So instead of getting like, uh, you know, big shot lawyer gets $1,000 an hour, uh, and you take these cases, you get $75 an hour. So I do a lot of that work, and I still do that at, right now, even tonight. I got a case in court tonight, right? As soon as I hang, I hang up with you guys, I'll be going virtually into the courthouse. And um, I think that that kind of keeps me and keeps my head in the right perspective to kind of do different it's Asian. nice to give back too, man. That's yes. what you're yeah. giving these people as a gift in your knowledge yeah. and experience. You know, sometimes I wonder the people I represent, they, if only they knew who I really represent, <laughs> they wouldn't give me such a hard time. I, I laugh to myself, but I, I wouldn't say it's a lot of fun. It's rewarding. It's very rewarding to be representing people uh, who have nothing and can't give you anything. Right. And, and to still do a good job and to still do the same job for those people as I do for the people who give me the top, you know, dollar. Do you know I why ask. Megan asked you that question? No. She just graduated Fordham. Oh, all right. Congratulations. I did. Thank you. Yeah, last year I graduated from the you know, Rose Hill campus. Funny. My son-in-law graduated from Fordham. His father did. I got so many people who graduated from Fordham. And I'll, I'll tell you a story about Fordham, a quick one. When my daughter was looking around at different colleges, she was looking at Fordham. She eventually went to Hofstra. And uh, anyhow, we were on the Fordham, the Fordham campus. And my daughter said, this place is magnificent. It's beautiful. And I said to myself, I said, gee, I wish I could go here and enjoy this wonderful campus. 
And I, I, I said it out loud then. I said, gee, this is a great place. I wish I could go. My daughter said, you did go here. <laughs> <laughs> the only thing is that when I went to Fordham, I lived in the Lower East Side, Knickerbocker Village, and I used to travel by car. I had a car in my second year and uh, went back and forth. I was the last guy in the building and the first guy out. And I always parked my car near the building of my last class. So you never I, saw the campus. <laughs> never saw anything. <laughs> I saw nothing. I wasn't part of any organization. I had no friends at Fordham. Oh, that's <laughs> I funny. I went to school and went home. And I'll tell you a funny story. I eventually went to law school at a place called New York Law School. Very famous place now. It wasn't that famous then. And it's like 57 Worth Street in Manhattan. Wow. And I was able, I lived in Manhattan with my mom. I was able to walk to school, to law school, back and forth. That's Sometimes I take the bus, when it's like if it was snowing, but I actually walked to law school and home. Uh, I lived in Manhattan. And, you know, Manhattan was the place until I got married and uh, I moved to Diker Heights, Brooklyn. And, and my kids grew up in Brooklyn. And, you know, as a Manhattan guy, I never knew about all the gangsters of Brooklyn. Oh, never, yeah. Dyke Heights. Really? Oh, God. Listen, Johnny, my, my neighborhood, Dyke Heights, is a fancy neighborhood. There's a lot of rich people who live here. Some of the homes here, you know, it's very famous at Christmas time. It's the place where all the lights are on. But... You know, in, in the 60s, and then again in the 90s, it was a battleground, a battleground. I mean, bullets flying all over the place, machine guns all over the place. Oh, I know. I, I know who lives there <laughs> and did live there. You know, so that, that was the funniest thing, because they moved to Diker Heights from the Lower East Side of Manhattan. And I said, oh, boy, this is a fancy neighborhood. Lo and behold, I find out. It's the same. It's the same stuff going on. Or I can't get away from it. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's a funny story, man. Dyke Heights. Uh, it's craziness. Craziness. So, what was your last big case? Or I mean, or I shouldn't you say know, that. I, I would was... say that the big, big, famous cases. You know, the extraordinary cases are a few and far between. Not only for me, but for everyone. Because, you know, let's face it, the, uh, in these organized crime cases, the government wiped out everyone. Oh, yeah, and that they, RICO uh, Act. Once they started they, using the RICO Act, that was it. You know, the and that's been changer. going on for years and years and years. And it's, it's three decades now. Well, more right. than that. Right. They started in 19... The RICO Act was passed in 1970, but no one had the guts to use it. I know, that's what I'm talking about. Did in 1980, because everyone thought it was unconstitutional. Giuliani used it and kept using it, and now here we are, you know, like 50 years of RICO case. I can't believe it. I've been a lawyer for 44 years, but uh, I think that those cases, they've really wiped out people. They're going after people now for the stupidest things, for gambling and, uh, you know, loan sharking and like all kind of stuff that people didn't even get arrested for 40 years ago when I first started. Oh, I know. So there aren't that many big, big cases going on. I mean, I, you know, I get my share of cases. I'm, I'm in there. I'm kind of getting old. But uh, federal court has changed a lot. I would say, to say it's mellowed would be wrong, but it's different. Things are different. And the whole court system is changing overnight. The state court system is kind of crazy. I have to say, even as a criminal defense lawyer, uh, I don't particularly like the trend which is going on right now in the state court systems, because when you have violence, going on in the streets, you know, and no bail. Yeah, my, my clients have been accused of a lot of violence. And you know what? Violence against each other. But when, when you have violence in the streets against innocent people and no one is arresting anyone, the police are afraid to do their job in fear that they'll be, you know, oh, we're somehow. Well, that they'll be arrested themselves. 
Yeah. Right. Exactly. I'm, I'm, I'm former NYPD man. I'm a retired yeah. lieutenant, and I still maintain contacts with cops. I mean, the cops that I served with, they're long retired, but. Uh, police officers now, before they make an arrest, and you aren't going to believe this unless you already know it, they have to call a sergeant before they can place somebody under arrest. I know it. You know, I've got a lot of... You hear something so ridiculous? Huh? You ever hear something so ridiculous? Well, you know, I've been talking to a lot of cops, uh, especially the young ones, and the young guys especially have been told, number one, in New York City, the mayor of New York City and the police commissioner, who is a fellow Xavier alumni, uh, Commissioner Shea. I think he's a great guy, but he takes his orders from the mayor. And they have been told to back off, back off everything. So now you've got the commissioner and the mayor telling you as a cop to back off. Now you've got your union telling you, back off because no one's going to back you up. You're going to hang out there. You're going to be strung up one way or another. I'm, shut, I'm shut, surprised anybody's on the job. Yeah. Well, they're, they're, they're resigning in huge, huge numbers. I was with a friend of mine today who's been a captain for 10 years. He's also a lawyer. And, uh, you know, he said, I stood on this job because I love it. He said, but I'm get, I have to get out. You see, I just can't stomach it anymore. Yeah. And I've heard that even the young guys, the young guys are trying to just put their time in. They're marching, march time, march to get out. What does that do for the citizens? What are we going to do as citizens if we don't have any police protection? And as far as the justice system, system in state court, I've always found the justice system to be fair. Now, as far as bail, yes, there had to be bail reform. It's not fair for someone to languish in, languish in prison awaiting trial because they have no money to get bailed out. But if you've got a serious case, there's no reason for you just to get released in your own recognizance. The key to the, to the problem is to give people speedy trials. You may have to lock someone up, but you can't let people stay in jail for two years because they don't have any money. So the key to protect the public and to protect the rights of the defendants is to have speedy trials, to require speedy trials, to give discovery over to defense lawyers immediately, and to resolve cases that can be resolved. Most cases do not go to trial. Matt, I'm gonna, I want you to hold that thought because this has been such an interesting show. There is a, an election coming up soon. And uh, let's see how they resolve all of these problems. But I'd like to bring you back on. I, I'm sure Pat and... and oh, absolutely. And, 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 I have a whole bunch of questions. Yeah, and, uh, and Megan, we, we want you back. So we, we have to end it now because our producer's saying... Uh, Yelling and she's Johnny, yelling under her breath. Politics too. Oh, we will. No, we'll do it all. No, we'll do it all. I, I think talking politics in November would be amazing. <laughs> a little more crazy. Yeah, but Matt, what a great guest! Thank you so much. We've been friends forever, and we're gonna call on you, man. You okay, got you Matt, got so much to Matt, offer. Thank you very much for being on the show. It was great meeting you. I'll be there. Thanks a lot for having all right, me. Thank you. Oh, thank you, you Matt. Okay, bye. bye. All right. Take care. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Today's show is being sponsored by Cordelione Fine Italian Food Products. This sponsor really means a lot to me. Cordelione Fine Italian has taken the heart and soul of the Godfather films and created a line of food products that include pasta sauce, balsamic vinegar from Modena, Italy, Genco Extra Virgin Olive Oil from Sicily, they created delicious pasta sauces, marinade, tomato basil, arrabbiato, and my favorite, Clemenza's meat sauce. You will be amazed. You will think your grandmother made the sauce herself. CorleoneFineItalian.com. That's CorleoneFineItalian.com. Our second sponsor tonight is very close to me personally because you know how I love to dress. La Cosa Mia will be coming soon. This is just a teaser. 
Each week, we'll be bringing you more ways to get in touch once their website is up. This line of clothing is from all over the world, and I'm sure you'll want to wear it. Hi, Patrick Picciarelli here. Before we get to our listeners' emails, a quick word about the new fiction book series I've launched. Private investigator Ray Yale tackles his first two cases in Bloodshot Eyes and The Pop Line. Both books are in paperback and are available on Amazon.com. I've been a PI for 30 years, and these books are based on my cases. Enjoy. It's time for the mailbag. All right, let's get to it. So first I want to share a message from someone named Wim. Wim says, I would like to thank all of you. You see, I live in a Belgian nursing home. Reason, a physical handicap because I didn't get enough air when I was born. I tell you this because in the first episode you speak about polio. I'm a good listener. My mind is good, but reading a complete American English book is difficult for me. Thanks to the podcast, I can discover all the histories and stories. For that reason is this letter. I would thank the podcast crew. I wish you the best. You have lots, lots to tell me. Wim from Belgium. Belgium? Wow. Mm -hmm. Wow. I feel very very humbled. Me too. Right? And uh, that's very impressive. Thank you. Belgium. Wow. God bless you, sweetheart. I'll put you in my prayers. Very sweet message. All right. Next is from James. James says, Megan Gianni and Patrick, I love the book and the podcast. I discovered both during quarantine and recently finished the book and caught up on past episodes. I have two questions for Gianni. First, are you a fan of Billy, Billy Joel? And did you ever listen to or know the backstory behind his song, Big Man on Mulberry Street from the album, The Bridge? No, I, I like Billy Joel, but I never studied his music. I, I, I mean, never, you know, it's so crazy because I know all these people and I've, I've been invited to these concerts and I last maybe an hour and I'm, fortunately I'm in a super box and we'll have some drinks and uh, to sit in an hour and a half for all that music, I like Sinatra, Bennett. I'm an old man. Or I'm, I'm, let me say this: I'm not. I'm. I'm an old soul that enjoys that music, and that's my music. It's. I, I listen to the classics. Love Billy Joel, though. All right. This is also from James. James says, and speaking of Mulberry Street, do you know Tommy the Nose, the guy who stands outside of Umberto's Clam House, offering tourists a free glass of wine? He's not this guy. Are you crazy? Singing Sinatra all the time. He said he's a great personality and not a bad singer. What's his story? He, that's what he does. He's a neighborhood guy. <laughs> yeah, he's a neighborhood guy that got that job. I know the Agnelli family very well. And uh, the nephew now, Robert, has that. But that was Matty the Horse had the original one down the street where Crazy Joe Gallo got killed in Umberto's Clam House. <laughs> Welcome to the neighborhood. Welcome to the neighborhood. There you right. go. Do you know how he got the name Tommy the Nose? Did you ever see the size of his nose? <laughs> no. he, he takes one well, breath. It lasts him all day. <laughs> well, there you go. He inhales once. It's good for him all day. Oh, that's yeah. clever. All right, moving on. We have a message from Patrick. Patrick says, hi, Pat and team. Love the podcast and hope you keep up the good work. I was listening to the Frank Culotta episode and was saddened to hear when a question came up about Canada. And Pat, your response was, I know it's north of the United States and beyond that, what's the point? Saddened by this response and hope I'm not being too thin-skinned about this, but I hope we are a worthwhile audience here in the great white north. Oh, uh, you know. Uh, hey, Pat, you, what are you doing? You know, my my uh, relatives I, will come I, across I, the border. And I tell you, my, uh, I, I, I apologize to Patrick. Uh, this is my humor, which is very sarcastic. Uh, if you haven't already figured it out, uh, that's 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 the way I act. And if I offended you, I am very sorry. That wasn't my intention. And I have to say one thing. He's lucky. I, I, I March 7th of this year, the last concert I did live was at Niagara Falls View Casino on the Canadian side. And there must have been 100 years of good behavior in the front row. So I'm glad we weren't on the air and they heard, they heard that. <laughs> oh, yeah. But I get oh, that, that. You're, you're a sarcastic guy. There's no... There's no that's the way no, it is. Yeah. There's no ill will for that. Yeah. Well, his well. question is, was Jilly, Frank Sinatra's friend, a hitman? Get out of here. <laughs> a hitman. 
Pat, answer the answer the story. Jesus, he, he, he couldn't uh, hit his ass with both hands. <laughs> Does that answer your question? He was a nice he guy. A, he, he, he took on a position with. They they he, built him. It was a, a facade. He was a professional host and very good at it. Right. Okay. Yeah. There we go. All right. Next is from Ian. Ian says, "Hi guys, your podcast came up as a suggestion from another I was listening to, and by God, I am glad it did." Only on season two, but it is compulsive listening while I am at work. I'd like to ask what the recipe is Gianni uses for his pasta al forno. Been a chef for 20 years, and I see so many different types, some with cream, some without. Keep up the great work. Ian from Leeds in the UK. Well, you're talking to his true Sicilian. I do not put cream in it, Molly. <laughs> <laughs> is that it? That's, how you, that's your recipe? That's, I don't give up my recipe. I don't use cream. Let's use that. Yeah. <laughs> That's a professional secret. Absolutely. All right. Next one is from Nick. I think this will be the last for tonight. Nick says, hey, guys, love the podcast. Was wondering the name and title of the opening song to the podcast. Thanks and keep up the good work. Um, it's like the Mamma Mia. Da, 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 Cella Luna Menzamara. That yeah. That's the name so of it. So what is the title? Cella Luna Menzamara. Okay. <laughs> or I mean, there a lot of uh, Americans call it "Oh Mama." They got so many. It's a, just an Italian, normally non street song. It's a good one. All right, that's all I have for tonight. Well, as we say every week, we thank all of you who tune in. Tell your friends. Keep the cards and letters and any way you communicate with us coming. Uh, as you can see, look at tonight. We had a, a letter from Belgium. I can't believe that. That was an yeah. email, I guess, right? Uh, I mean, but yeah, it was an email. Thank you all, and spread the word, man. We want to stay on the air. This is too much fun. God bless you all, and there'll be a new show up every Wednesday. But you must know that. But God bless you. Good night, Pat. Good night, Megan. Good night, Johnny. Good night, Megan. Good night, guys. Thank you for tuning in to the Hollywood Godfather podcast. You can contact Gianni Russo, Patrick Picciarelli, or myself with your questions and comments through the contact section of our website, hollywoodgodfatherpodcast.com. You can also call and leave us a message at 646-776-3038. Regarding Gianni's motivational speaking appearances, you can visit his website, giannirusso.com. You can also visit amazon.com for a listing of books Patrick Picciarelli has written. Remember to follow us on Instagram at hollywoodgodfatherpodcast.com as well as leave us a review on iTunes. We'd like to know what you like about what we're doing, what you'd like to hear in the future, and anything else you might suggest to improve our podcast. Most importantly, hit the subscribe button. We'll be back next week with stories of the mob and Hollywood, as well as answers to your emails and voicemails. Good night. was 21 It was a very good year It was a very good year For city girls who lived up the stairs With all their perfumed hair And it came When I was 21 When I was 35 It was a very good year it was a very good year For blue-blooded girls Of independent means We'd ride in limousines Their chauffeurs would drive When I was 35 
And I think of my life as vintage wine from fine old From the brilliant and it pours sweet and clear. Yes, very, very.